If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. With parachuting monkeys, volcanic eruptions and stirring performances of Beethoven's symphonies, Surrey Zoo was no ordinary Victorian attraction. Dr Joanne Cormack of the University of Nottingham has written a piece on the zoo for BBC History magazine and she caught up with Rob Attar to discuss what the story of this eye-opening pleasure park and the rise of zoos more generally can tell us about science, leisure and empire in the Victorian age. People in Britain had been collecting and displaying exotic animals for many centuries but where would we see the origins of the modern zoo as we understand it? In the early 19th century, so London Zoo is our first kind of modern zoo established in 1828 um, by the uh, Zoological Society of London. The society is established in 1826 and then the zoo opens a couple of years later. The zoo in Regent's Park is, is kind of quite different from any other menagerie or collection of exotic animals that existed beforehand. So before... Um, the Regent's Park Zoo, most uh, collections of exotic animals are often the, the property of monarchies, so royal collections, and they're not necessarily to do with science and learning and, and conservation and taxonomy. 
Um, so these are more recent ideas. So the, the Zoological Society of London is quite special because um, it's formed by a society of middle class learned people who are interested in animals and, and learning about them and science. And so the London Zoo is, is really special because then it's, it's sort of a model for proliferation of zoos that we get soon afterwards across Europe and across Great Britain. Um, so we have more kind of societies uh, cropping up, displaying animals outside, which is another another new thing, rather than um, inside in quite um, fairly kind of cramped conditions. We now have the, the animals displayed outside in these large pleasure gardens, or often admitting the public, but sometimes just for the members of, of a society. So the kind of tone and, and what they're, they're for has changed a lot in the 1820s with the, the London Zoo. And is there any particular significance, do you think, in the timing of this? Does it feed into things like industrial revolution, changes in scientific knowledge, maybe kind of imperial changes? Is, is the 1820s significant in that regard? Yes, I think so. I think um, this is all part of a broader 19th century interest in taxonomy and learning and kind of a confidence that we can know the world and we can pin it down and we can write encyclopedia entries about everything, give everything a name and know what it is. So I think there's that aspect. Um, there's new um, middle class interest in learning and leisure time as well, which feeds into it. And also, as you say, imperialism definitely is an important factor in the proliferation of zoos, because at this time, Britain is at the centre of an um, expanding global empire and People and goods and ships are going back and forth between Britain and India and, and um, other places around the world. And people are coming back with stories and uh, extracts, writing down images, what they've seen of the flora and fauna of, of different exotic countries. So there's a, a real interest in the exotic and a real desire to understand it and um, a kind of 19th century arrogance that the best way we can do this is to bring these animals back home, um, make them endure these very dangerous crossings and put them where we can observe them and, and learn about them. So I suppose modern zoos have this dilemma about trying to promote both scientific understanding but also creating a venue that provides entertainment to help help fund them. Is, is that a dilemma that zoos in the 19th century had to contend with too? Yes, and we see two different models of zoos um, in the 19th century. So there's the Regent's Park Zoological Society of London model, which to begin with, that zoo didn't admit members of the public. It was for its members and is about conservation. And there's still ethical issues attached to, to, to that zoo model because the keepers didn't really know what they were doing. <laughs> a lot of them were learning on the job. And that was one of the things that surprised me, kind of a reading about 19th century zoos, that it was kind of a success story. If this we managed to keep this animal alive for a couple of months... And so there are ethical issues there, but I think the ethical issues are far less prominent with those zoos than they are with the, the Surrey Zoological Garden that we're going to be talking about now, because the Surrey Zoo is on a different kind of model, the kind of menagerie style model, which is about displaying exotic animals for commercial gain, really, to kind of titillate the public. To begin with, Surrey had some more lofty um, conservational aims, but they became less, far less important as time went on and, and the entertainment factor became the, the real crucial element. So yeah, so coming on to Surrey Zoo, which is the main focus of the feature for the magazine that you've written, what were the origins of this zoo? So Surrey Zoo was founded by a man called Edward Cross 
And Cross, earlier in the 19th century, had had a collection, a menagerie um, at the Exeter Exchange, which is on the Strand in London. So a smaller collection of animals, which were all held indoors in fairly poor conditions. I mean, they were, they were poor enough to even be commented on at the time when kind of animal, animal cruelty wasn't considered in the same way that it is, is now. Um, but even then, it was criticised. And there was an incident with an elephant named Juni who got quite aggressive and was held in such cramped conditions that he became too too aggressive uh, to control. They they shot him with, I think, 150 or so musket shots. And this got really, really bad response in the press. But Edward Cross did did pretty well for a while out of this exchange collection of animals. And it was visited by Wordsworth and Lord Byron. and, And he had connections with royalty as well. One of his animals, a mandrel named Happy Jerry, <laughs> he um, lent him to George IV to have um, dinner and um, smoke his pipe and, and drink liquor and have some venison. So Cross did well out of this menagerie, but the press responses got worse over time and he had to come up with a decision about what to do with this with this collection. And he approached the Zoological Society of London. He wanted to sell the collection um, to that nascent society and he also wanted to be taken on as a director of their new zoo but they didn't want him because they didn't fit in with kind of the aims of the London Zoo he wasn't interested in conservation in the same way he didn't have the same reputation and so in, in the end Cross founded the Surrey Zoological and Botanical Institution co-founded with, with some other other men and they came together to um, buy this this large um, pleasure garden and to display Cross's animals and, and then it kind of went from there really. And so what kind of people were attending this zoo? I mean today I suppose zoos attract quite a broad section of society. Was it the same in those days? Um, it would have been kind of upper middle class and um, aristocracy as well, um, especially in the in the early days of the Surrey Zoological Gardens, because the, the Surrey Zoo was really quite fashionable. Um, I mean, we shouldn't necessarily see it as an inferior to London Zoo in many ways, because it had animals that had never been seen before in Great Britain, and it had very well maintained like beautiful gardens it had quite impressive structures it had the the biggest glass conservatory ever seen in in, in the UK so it was frequented by royalty by aristocracy and kind of upper echelons of like middle classes really but as time went on the animals became less important the gardens got a bit run down and and everything was overtaken by other entertainments beyond the animals and the clientele became kind of a bit lower class, lower middle class. Tickets came a bit cheaper. But yeah, the clientele sort of changed over time. And so what were some of the standout attractions they had beyond the animals at the zoo? Well, they had all sorts of things. And this was one of the things that um, surprised me and kind of drew me um, to this particular zoo. Um, because in the in the British Library, they have a really large um, collection of um, some scrapbooks with loads of images and press cuttings and ephemera around this this zoo and some of the the things that the the zoo was advertising included dioramas and and kind of staged recreations of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius so you have a volcano um, erupting giving off smoke and flashes of light and rumbling noises and lava cascading and there are large-scale models of whole towns, whole cities like Venice and Edinburgh all being recreated. There's the Siege of Gibraltar being created with, with real battle um, shots. There's 
the temples of Ellora from Hindu mythology is, is advertised. So another kind of quite um, colonial um, theme going on there. And these were the attractions that really kind of took off in the 1840s. So the, the zoos established in 1831 and the animals in the 1830s are probably the, the most important part of, of the attractions. And then in the 1840s, we get these enormous tableau being painted uh, and advertised, all, all the scenery, really intricate models, fireworks, displays, advertising kind of the best pyrotechnic displays on, on offer in Europe at the time. Um, so these are the things that are kind of really the star attractions now in the 1840s. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Do you have a sense from your research of why the animals weren't seen to be enough by this point? Considering these animals were still fairly exotic and wouldn't have been seen by many people in Britain, why did they feel the need to put on this extra entertainment too? Well, in the 1830s and 40s, there's a proliferation of zoos um, in Great Britain. Um, some of them are no longer here, but some of them are. So Bristol Zoo, we have Manchester, Liverpool, um, Dublin Zoo in, um, in Ireland. So all of these zoos come around a, a similar sort of time. And I think Surrey is um, trying to um, stand out as something a bit different. It's competing with all these other places. And most of the other zoos are built on the kind of Zoological Society of London model. They're more interested in conservation and learning. There aren't many zoos that go down the sort of menagerie style in the way that Surrey has, and certainly not to the same scale. So I think it's a way to, to differentiate itself from other zoos. And also from the other kinds of entertainment going on at the time, um, in 1840s, leisure becomes much more important than it had kind of previously because people have a bit more leisure time 
the rise of the middle classes have a bit of money to spend they're going to travel and go places and do things I think in the, the 19th century the kind of the variety entertainments are really popular so if you go to a, a musical concert you're going to hear all sorts of different types of, of music um, if you go to the great exhibition in 1851 you're going to hit things from all around the empire and technology and, and culture and all sorts of things so I think there's a, there is a, an appetite for, for variety which which Surrey taps into really well in terms of the animals themselves, do we know which animals were the biggest attractions? Is it similar to the kind of animals that all the kids run to see today? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, another thing that struck me from looking through all these scrapbooks was the press reports of the animals arriving and the anticipation of that. And um, we we're expecting this boat with this animal and it was caught from by this person. This is the captain of the ship. This is the, the, sta- the, the tale of its daring capture. And then people would wait for the boat to arrive so they could try and catch, catch a glimpse of, of the animals. And sometimes they had to bring animals in, in the undercover darkness to, to kind of stop people um, getting in the way. Um, and upsetting them. But yes, I think it is the, the kind of animals that we'd be excited about today. So the, the big carnivores, uh, the giraffes were quite a, an attraction because there weren't many giraffes in, in the UK at the time. So we had the first giraffes. There was a race to get the first rhinoceros. And I think London Zoo actually beat Surrey to it. Surrey had a, a rhinoceros on its way, but it died during the, the crossing, unfortunately. Those kind of, those larger animals, elephants, giraffes, lions, rhinoceroses those are the kind of really exciting ones and you mentioned earlier that um in his earlier career edward cross had been notorious for how badly he'd treated his animals what were the conditions like in surrey zoo was it improved yes it was much improved i mean the the place was much bigger um, than the extra exchange it was, was outside um so there was more room for the for the animals to roam and they invested in making um, it a, a place to enjoy kind of walking around and invested in state-of-the-art buildings. Um, and they still weren't really what we'd, we'd expect today. So that, that the glass conservatory that I mentioned was, was the biggest one in the UK, but it housed lots of different animals. It housed a lot of carnivores and it, it housed an aviary. I think it probably would have been quite smelly in there in the height of summer with all these lions and, and hyenas and things. So yes, it, the conditions were better, but the animals would still be packed in and weren't kind of free to roam like they are in, in many zoos today. Now, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, many zoos like London Zoo are still with us today. Obviously, Surrey Zoo isn't, and it didn't actually last the 19th century. What do you think explained the fact that it closed while others didn't? I think competition was one of the reasons. So kind of later on in the 1840s and 1850s, um, there were just too many different places that uh, a middle-class Victorian could go for entertainment. They could go to the theatre quite easily. They could go to a music hall show. They could go to other zoos, other kinds of pleasure gardens that maybe didn't have animals. And they go to the seaside. There, there was just so much on offer. I think also perhaps going down the route of investing so much in the entertainments and less so in, in the animals meant that the place did get a bit run down um, after a while. And so it then began to seem a bit less fashionable. It wasn't quite as nice a place to go and promenading, um, which had been part of the initial attraction. So Edward Cross, he retired in 1844. And then his successor, so Edward Cross had kind of started the, the move into these tableaus and I think the amount of Vesuvius erupting, things I've mentioning but his, his successor took it even further and I, th- I think perhaps that was that was a mistake kind of not investing in the animals and, and the surroundings as much as coupled with the, the competition from everywhere else. 
You mentioned that uh, Surrey Zoo had some really remarkable buildings and gardens. What happened to those after the zoo closed? Well, Surrey Music Hall was built on the, on the same spot, but it burnt down. And I think most of them have been knocked down and turned into housing now. Um, so Surrey Zoo now is part of it is Pasley Park. So there is still some kind of sort of pet pleasure garden-ish there, but much smaller. So yes, knocked down housing really. And from your research into Surrey Zoo, were there any particular episodes or stories from its, from its history that really stood out to you? Well, yes, a couple. So one of the reasons I started looking at it was because I'm actually a, a historian of music in the 19th century. And I was looking at the 19th century symphony, so works for full orchestra. And I came across this man called Louis Julien, um, who was a very charismatic French conductor. And I saw that he conducted symphonies at the Surrey Zoological Garden. I thought, oh, this is quite unusual. Um, and yeah, so so Louis Julien, he... Um, he was very charismatic. He was quite happy for kind of mythological stories um, to circulate about himself in the press and didn't kind of bother about correcting anything and um, was quite interested in his own PR. So there were stories about how he'd had to come to Britain to escape his Parisian creditors and he'd been injured in a duel and had to hide out in a farmhouse and run away. And, and he popularised classical music Really. So he was not really particularly remembered now, but he travelled all around Great Britain conducting classical music in amongst kind of waltzes and polkas and quadrilles and more popular things and gave people access to kind of Beethoven symphonies um, for the first time and conduct these in the zoo opposite the giraffe house, probably all the animals <laughs> like in, in the background. And he'd add his own effects so there might be gunshots during Beethoven's Battle Symphony or fireworks going off, or he'd, he used to rattle a jar of peas, dried peas during the Pastoral Symphony to kind of amplify the storm effects. He'd kind of dress for the occasion with white gloves, sit on a throne, use a dual battle and that sort of thing. So that was kind of my way into it. And then when I started looking through these scrapbooks to find out kind of what is the context for the, these musical performance performances, then I really got interested in in the zoo itself and, and what it means, what it can tell us about Victorian ideals and, and what, what people were doing in, in the 19th century. And then I kind of turned over a page in the scrapbook and saw this little um, extract about a man called Charles Green, who I'd never heard of, um, who ascended um, in his hot air balloon from a raft in the middle of, of the lake at Surrey Zoo. And he had a companion called Jacopo, who was a monkey. And Jacopo the monkey parachuted down wearing a smart little red jacket, an especially made parachute and had a label attached to him saying, if this is property of Surrey Zoological Garden, please return if found. There's a, a reward if you can find him. So then I was, was hooked after reading things like this in the scrapbook. What is this place? What were they doing there? Because it's just so kind of different from like our 21st conception of what a zoo is and what kinds of things you might expect to see. It. You might see somebody feeding the animals at a zoo, but you're not going to be parachuting with a monkey. And, and I read, found out a bit further and found out that Charles Green was a really famous aeronaut and a record breaker with um, the distances that he managed to travel in his balloon. And then they had other celebrities coming to the zoo as well. So they had Margaret Graham as well, who was the first British woman to make a solo balloon flight. And they even um, contacted P.T. Barnum to see if they could borrow some of his acts. They borrowed um, Tom Thumb 
the Lilliputian wonder, they called him, who um, dressed up as Napoleon, and he went up in the balloon as well. So yeah, there's all sorts of, of so- stories of fascinating things that you could you could see at the zoo, which obviously are problematic, and you wouldn't want to, to see them now, but they, they give you a real insight into to what people were interested in in the 19th century. And do we know if Jacopo was returned? Yes, he was. Um, <laughs> the press reports say that he didn't much seem to relish the ride. I think that's, that's what they said, unsurprisingly. But he's later on recorded as doing it again. Poor thing. Um, so yes, he survived. And then are there any other broad themes about Victorian Britain that you think the zoo embodies that we haven't discussed yet? I think... Britain's place in the world, I suppose. We've mentioned that about imperialism, but also just kind of being a model in terms of like leading the way forward for, for zoology, the science of zoology, and also the structures in the zoo. Because even though like London Zoo isn't the first zoo, it's, it is the first zoo of its, its type, and it did then kind of set the agenda around Europe. So Britain wanting to kind of be interested in progress, wanting to be a leader in all sorts of different areas in the 19th century, the kind of ambition and confidence, I think, it it shows. That was Dr Joanne Cormack. Her article on this subject appeared in the January 2023 edition of BBC History magazine and can also be found on our website at historyextra.com forward slash Victorian hyphen zoos. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.